This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. You're listening to the MomWell Podcast. Today, I am excited to welcome doula and activist Sabia Wade to the show. We've had Sabia on the show before, all the way back on episode 19, when she joined us to discuss racism and privilege in birth work. And today, Sabia is joining us to discuss her new debut book, Birthing Liberation, How Reproductive Justice Can Set Us Free. She is a consultant and advocate in the birth and reproductive health industry, and today she's joined us to talk about what reproductive justice is and why it matters, why birthing liberation impacts all moms, how discrimination can show up in the healthcare system, and how we can get involved day-to-day in the reproductive justice movement. It is so important for us to listen to the voices that are leading the charge in the reproductive movement or in Black maternal health advocacy to really understand what is going on in our medical system or healthcare systems and how we can get involved in supporting women and mothers around us. Sabia describes birthing advocacy as coming down to three core principles, care, choice, and justice. Let's explore these together in this week's episode with Sabia Wade. Do you ever feel like you just want to hide in a dark, quiet closet? You're not alone. As a mom of three boys, I know what it's like to feel overstimulated, touched out, and easily triggered. Nobody ever told us that motherhood would be so chaotic, that constant touches, noises, and clutter could push us into sensory overload. So when we find ourselves drowning in stimulation, we don't know how to handle it. We end up feeling frustrated, irritated, and angry. And as moms, we often don't get the chance to turn down the noise, walk away, or find a moment to regroup and recharge our batteries. But we don't have to live in constant overload. We can learn skills to manage our own response to the noise, mess, and touch. We can stay calm and grounded so that we can be more present and connected without feeling like we're always in fight or flight mode. On June 9th at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, Dr. Reem, Psyched Mommy, and I are holding a live workshop, Managing Overstimulation in Motherhood. You'll learn why you get so overstimulated, how to recognize your triggers, and the simple changes you can make to your environment that can help. We'll also teach you practical tips to keep calm and walk you through your own personalized overstimulation plan so you can manage your reactions in and out of the moment. Can't make it live? No problem. You'll get lifetime access to the recording so you can watch it at your own pace and revisit the workshop whenever you need. It's time to take charge of your senses instead of letting them control you. We only hold a couple of live events a year, so make sure to register today so you don't miss out. Visit momwell.com slash overstimulation to register today. That's momwell.com slash overstimulation. Welcome to the MomWell podcast, where we're committed to helping you cope with the load of motherhood. I'm your host, registered psychotherapist and founder of MomWell, Erica Jossa. At MomWell, we know that motherhood is hard, but care shouldn't be. We're committed to providing you with knowledge, tools, and support to navigate the challenges of motherhood. Our mission is to put moms back on the priority list and empower them to create a mental wellness toolbox free from judgment, fear, and shame. On the show, we'll be discussing topics such as postpartum depression, identity loss, the mental load of motherhood, and more. We'll be joined by experts, moms, and professionals who can offer advice, practical tips, relatable stories, and honest conversations. Here at MomWall, we believe that when a mom is well, a baby is well. So join us as we discuss the topics that matter to you with experts who get it. Together, we can redefine motherhood and change the way moms are treated. Sabia, thank you so much for coming back to join us on now the MomWell podcast. You were like an OG from way back, episode 19. Similar conversation, similar content, but new podcast here, new stage in your career for you. Welcome back. So excited to have you. Thank you for having me. I love like, it's like a meaningful, transformative thing. Cause you know, as you're like doing work and you're doing the things that you feel like you're doing the same thing every day or you're not progressing or whatever it is. So when I come back to spaces that I've been in years ago, I'm like, Oh, yeah. so it's nice to see, like to see the reflection of my work in this space, but also to see the reflection of your work. 
in his space. Yeah, I agree. It's this like pause and reflection of that. We're back talking before 20 episodes. It's like 170 something now. Mm-hmm. And your book, we were just talking off air about my book being due this week. It's just, yeah, amazing to see our platforms grow in such a like meaningful space. Mm-hmm. You were one of the conversations of one of the first conversations I probably ever had publicly before even the BLM stuff really took off and before the George Floyd stuff took off because it was something that I was just also living and wanting to learn more about for the practice and working with like within the company and things. And you wrote a book called Birthing Liberation that I was reading in preparation for our interview It was such a helpful read for me because I've learned and submersed myself in a lot of these topics already, but to have it stitched together for me in such a way that brought such clarity while also being so compassionate and like grounding along the way is really something special. So I'd love to hear how the book came about for you. Yes, how the book came about. (laughs) When it's like a book is always a journey, right? Like it's coming about and you don't even know what's happening. Right. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh, I'm just living my life, doing my work and whatever. And then it comes to this point where you're like, oh, it's time for a book. But for me, the book was a mix of one, just my experience as a birth worker, right? My experience also as a Black, queer, non-binary woman, my experience of my organizations that I run, and like also my experience as a teacher, right? And seeing how people were relating to the content of like racism and privilege and birth work and how trauma was such a big part of that. And so I think for me, it was like, how do I create a resource for everyone, right? But also in a way that is not just like this informative piece, right? Because I can get it into statistics all day and everyone sees those things, right? But for me, the, the missing link has always been, how do we connect these things to our personal selves, Right. Even if we don't identify as a, you know, the community that's being impacted by racism the most, so on and so forth. But it was like, how do I make a resource that can be read across different professions? How do I create a space that takes the onus off of birthing people to save themselves? Yeah. And looks more at the provider and the caregiver and the people that are around that birthing people to say, like, how do we as a community, no matter if we're specifically a birth worker, or if we're just a cousin of a birthing person or a sister or a brother of a birthing person, like what is our responsibility in this work as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we're having this interview, recording it right now during Black Maternal Health Week. And we've been discussing it a lot on our feed and I've been seeing a lot about it. And this will drop a little bit after the fact, of course, but there's been more awareness and there's more conversations happening and we can get into some of those. But I also feel like once we start to get into the statistics, there's a real like heaviness or something that sits in about like, what can we do about it? This feels so like systemic. This feels so like out of touch for us to have an impact. So mm-hmm. I know we'll get there. Maybe we'll maybe wrap up with some of those pieces. But the fact that this book helps with that is really incredible. So Birthing Liberation, How Reproductive Justice Can Set Us Free. Now, I don't know if people would even know what reproductive justice means or why it's so important. Can we start there by unpacking that? Yes. So reproductive justice is everything. So one of the things I always say is we all are born. We may not have many things in common. We may be so different in the ways that we move and the way that we identify, but all of us are born. And because all of us come into this world, this like earthy world, we all deserve to have what we need, Mm. right? Reproductive justice is that, right? Like how do we make sure that everyone has what they need at a base level, right? So if you look at the definition, it's like, you know, the ability to have children, to not have children, to have children and raise them in safe and sustainable communities. And even if you think about the safe and sustainable community part, it's like, hmm, that's already a big question, right? right? And also what is safety and what is sustainability, And safety is even prior to someone being pregnant. It's, do you have the food that you need to be a healthy person? Do you have a good water supply? Is there jobs in your local space that can provide you what you need to be able to afford your rent, right? Do you have a a hospital in your area? Do you live in a place that is food secure? You deal with food insecurity, right? Like everything is reproductive justice. And I think it's really important to name that When we hear about reproductive justice, I think, especially if you're not in this space the way that we are, it's not about just having children. 
It's mm-hmm. also about your ability to not have children if you choose not to, right? It's also your ability to be a single free person if you choose to, or to be a married with 10 kids person if you want to, mm-hmm. right? It's mm-hmm. also about not just people who have, you know, a uterus, it's also about the people who don't have a uterus, right? It's like, yeah. it's literally about everybody. So was, I think like the biggest thing that I would want people to take away is that it's not simply about pregnancy, it's about life. Mm. And like autonomy over our body to make our own decisions. Mm-hmm. And now we're having this interview in a post Roe v. Wade world where before, you know, it felt like we were advancing in certain rights. And now for the first time ever, we're having rights taken away. And whether fundamentally, personally, I believe in abortion for whatever reason or not, I can sit here and feel like it is not my place to make a decision for somebody else because I don't know anything to do with their situation. Mm -hmm. And so I've seen this come up a lot with the Dr. Jennifer Lincolns and people who are really now their spheres in the reproductive space, whether they're OBGYNs and other professionals, are now in this advocacy work as well. Like it straddles both of these worlds now. For sure. Because regardless of my own personal convictions or whatever they may be, I'm not you. And I don't know what shoes you walk in or what stage of your pregnancy or what complications or what health conditions might be going on or what reasons are happening. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like in this time right now, reproductive justice, from when I think about it, I think about just autonomy over our body as like a fundamental right. For sure, for sure. And I think, you know, exactly what you're saying, right? Like even with my doulas, right, that I train and my organization birthing advocacy doula trainings, one of the things that we talk about is these three principles of like care, choice, and justice, right? So your ability to get the care that you need, your ability to have a choice, and your ability to have justice when things are not what they need to be. And so when we think about choice, it's exactly what you're saying. Like, you always have your personal choice on what you would do, right? You can have an abortion, not have an abortion, believe it and not believe in it. But who am I to take away a choice from someone else, mm. right? And like like you said, we don't know the details and the details don't need to be explained to me, right? Right? It's not like, it's like, oh, you deserve to get an abortion because of this traumatic thing you went through, but this other person shouldn't, right? It's like, right. it's not my business. My business is making sure that I mind my own business, Right. And choose a thing that's good for me, but also can be supportive of people having a choice that is good for them. Yeah. And I think specifically when we talk about abortion, I really like to emphasize for folks that yes, abortion is like one of many things, right? When we talk about like a clinic, like an abortion clinic or somewhere where abortions happen, but also abortion clinics provide so many other services. Mm. They provide, you know, health screenings, they provide cancer screenings, they provide STI prevention. They provide, you know, whatever these other pieces are, comprehensive sex education. They provide all types of resources, especially for those that are um, in communities that are underserved as far as like health resources, right? Especially for low-income folks, marginalized communities. So when we think about abortion, we have to think about when we think about those abortion clinics out of these spaces that are necessary, it's not just abortions that are impacted. Mm. It's all the other pieces that are impacted as well. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's like it's bigger than abortion. It's more so like we say all the time. Do you think people should have health care? Right. That's really it. Do you think they should have health care? Abortion is just one small part of the healthcare system. Right. And healthcare options. But there's so many other things that are connected to that. Mm-hmm. So we have to think about it, you know, not as such an individual process, knowing that you can make your individual choice. Mm-hmm. Right. But understanding that when we say yay or nay to people's bodily autonomy, that we're also saying yay or nay to should they have what they need. One of the most relentless mental loads is being the juggler of medical appointments. Researching doctors, reading reviews, making phone calls to book appointments, it's a lot of stress when you're already juggling so much invisible labor. That's what makes ZocDoc great for moms. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare hundreds of types of highly rated in-network doctors, including mental health providers, and instantly book appointments with them online. ZocDoc has doctors of all specialties, including therapists, psychiatrists, and psychologists, with verified patient reviews so you can make sure they check all your boxes. You can find mental health providers who offer in-person appointments, virtual consults, or both, whatever works for you. 
The typical wait time to see a mental health provider booked on ZocDoc is just four days. Sometimes you can even book same-day appointments. Make juggling appointments easier with ZocDoc. Go to ZocDoc.com momwell and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated therapist, psychiatrist, or psychologist today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash momwell. ZocDoc.com slash momwell. Want to get smarter about your health but feel overwhelmed trying to separate fact from fiction? We hear a lot about gut health, microbiomes, and other nutrition topics, but taking the time to research these is exhausting. And there's a lot of misinformation out there. The Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast makes it so much easier to get the information you need. With the help of world-leading scientists, the podcast gives you research-based information so you can make informed choices for yourself without pressure and guilt. People are loving Zoe Science and Nutrition. Listener Stephanie's Apple Review says the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast is a life-changing, science-based, myth-busting podcast. That's a must-listen for anyone who eats food and wants to understand how it affects their body. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast, you can join Stephanie and millions of others accessing quality information about their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. It's bringing me down this whole storyline and narrative in my own mind, which I'll touch on for a moment and then we'll get back on track (laughs) because I was raised in a very conservative evangelical home. As a matter of fact, I actually used to go to our government and lobby pro-life legislation as a young adult. Then I went through university and school and got my education and I began working in this space. And I began to understand that these decisions or these cases or these people's lives are not the narrative that I thought they were. Mm -hmm. They are actually maybe not not viable sometimes. Or there are a million variations of which we cannot account for and understand, Mm -hmm. of which I've come to learn There's a history of us policing and making decisions for women's bodies, which doesn't inherently like trust their own ability to be able to reason and decide what I can do for myself in any situation, right? So it's something that I feel like I can see both sides of the logic. I feel like I've lived Mm -hmm. both spaces and perceptions and ultimately in doing this work can say that I know nothing about your situation and I know nothing about where you're at to bring a life in the world or to not. I know my privilege and I know that I could afford to bring another child into the world if I wanted to on a whim, if it happened or whatever, to care for a special needs child for sure, um, because of the resources I have or whatever. But I know that that's not the case for everybody. So anyways, a little bit of an aside, but I feel like I can see both pieces and my evolution in this area from a, my own perception has been ongoing. And I think, too, like, it really speaks to, right, like, in birthing liberation, like, there's a reason why it's called birthing liberation, right? There's a lot of conversation about what is liberation, what is bodily autonomy, what is choice, like, what are these things, right? And one of the things that we have to be aware of in this reproductive space and in general in life is that my liberation is, is highly and intrinsically connected to yours, Right. So if I limit you and the options that you can have, right, when I say, oh, you can't have an abortion because I don't think this is whatever. What if I become in a situation where I need an abortion? Now I'm also limiting myself. Mm. Right. Like because I was only looking at it from this one perspective, this one viewpoint. I was looking at it from my place of privilege, from my piece of, you know, individuality and not saying like, hey, if I limit this person in the way that they approach things, I'm also limiting myself. Right. And mm. even in that specific to abortion conversation. People are unaware of how that also impacts fertility, mm. right? It also impacts these other things that right. you're like, oh, like, oh, I thought it was just abortion. It's like, no, it's healthcare. So now the ways that we move in fertility and we're trying to bring a child into the world, aiming to, for whatever reasons, and having difficulties around that, like now we're also limiting that, right? right? So it was like, we have to always be aware of the fact that our liberation is highly connected to the next person's liberation. And before we start to limit, right, what what someone can do, how they should move, we have to really think, like, down the line, how does that also impact me? Because I limited them and their choice of freedom, 
right? And their choice of bodily autonomy, I am now limited as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see that. And I have lots of OB-GYN friends in this space who I've had conversations with where many of these situations are like life and death for mom or baby is going to be stillbirth, but they still have to carry them to term. Like there's just so many and we don't need to, you know, trigger warning and talk about all the traumatic ways that this can play out. But it's also not the narrative that we think that it is and that I once believed that it was, right? So it is a lot more nuanced. Also, I love that you shared that. I think it's so important for people to see like just growth, you know, like just growth. Like I always say, like even when I was coming into birth work, I've always identified as a queer person. But I remember in 2015 when I started being a doula, I didn't know all the terminology. I really didn't. Like Mm. I was like, I know I'm gay. Like I was like, (laughs) but then I started to learn more about different ways of identifying it, even expanding like, you know, what queerness was for me. And even for me now, that's the ongoing thing. So it wasn't like I was like ever like anti, like whatever, but it was things that I had to learn and grow even in my process. So Mm -hmm. I love just hearing like stories of transformation or learning perspective and just growth. I think that's so honest and so real. And it serves as an example of what we need in the world. Hmm. Yeah. Thanks for that. As I've been in this maternal mental health space and as I've seen how even from a care perspective or like a mental health care perspective, women are hystericalized and gaslit and not listened to and that much more for like women of color. And it has opened my eyes to the types of ways that women's voices just haven't been heard or haven't been listened to or our ability to think for ourselves hasn't been respected. Mm -hmm. And Emily Oster talks about this in a really sort of light way of when research is put out there or best practices are put out there for pregnancy and things, for example, like there's these prescriptive rules that are put out there for us as if we can't have some autonomy to make some decisions for ourselves with things. And this journey through the like maternal mental health space and just understanding some of the ins and outs of this world At every corner I looked, it was just like women are being ignored or disrespected or not listened to. And it's been a process. And of course, I'm still learning. And as we talk about like this Black Maternal Health Week, and we're talking about the statistics of the three to four times more likely to have maternal death over white women and other women, Mm -hmm. still learning in this space as well. I remember actually our first conversation so distinctly because I was like, why does this happen? I'm like, there, like, is there like a biological reason why this happens? Like, I can't, I was so naive and I'm sure I'm still naive to an extent. And you were like, no, there's really not. Like there's, and you started to unpack it for me. And I'm just like, how can this still be happening? But what kinds of things contribute to the disproportionate rate? So like we talked about, and I think, you know, it's very human-like, right? To think about what are these reasons? Is it socioeconomic status? Is it access to healthcare, you know, whatever it is. We think about these very logical reasons. And like, in theory, I wish it was that simple, right? I wish it was like, hey, people need, you know, quicker access to healthcare or they need more support financially. It would be very nice if that was actually anything to do with anything, right? But all the research shows that it's really racism and discrimination in the healthcare system, Mm. right? And I think that part makes it even harder Right. Because racism and discrimination is not something that could be measured or something that can just be fixed or just be like, here's access to this. Right. Like it's something that, again, which is why I wrote the book. Right. It's like, how do we address that piece? Mm -hmm. Right. How do we address it in our internal selves about the racism that we're all holding to some level? Right. How do we adjust? How do we bring it to the forefront? How do we move through it? How do we, you know, have these conversations and do like the actual somatic work? that also, you know, eventually comes to the logical piece of how we work with Black, Brown, and Indigenous folks. And so, like I said, there is racism discrimination, and that's the reason for it. That's the main reason for it. But I also want to bring in, like, yes, that is the issue. And I think a part of it is, one, you know, I would prefer you to read my book and <laughs> and do the work that comes with that. But I also want to name that in this process, I think a lot of the conversation that is missed is that there are so many communities and people who are doing work that are helping and improving 
their communities. There's a lot of Black organizations, a lot of Black folks, a Mm -hmm. lot of people who are doing this work and have been doing this work, right, in their communities. And so another big part of, like, what do we do about it is we support those people, right? right? We support the people who are already doing it and have been doing it, but are under-resourced because of racism and discrimination in these spaces, right? Like, you know, how do we put our resources toward that? How do we put out the word by mouth? How do we provide resources? How do we do our own part, our own internal work mm-hmm. to provide for that? I think as it is important to talk about the statistics, right? About what's happening and how terrible it is, right? That cannot be missed, right? Right? Like new names of birthing people are being added to that list every day about people yeah. who could have been here because 60% of the deaths are preventable, yeah. right? And it's a very large number, But I also think in that conversation, we have to add about Black joy, about Black liberation, about Black resources, about how people are doing this work and have been doing this work, right? So I think we have to always encompass that whole full spectrum beyond the statistics into what we can do and also who's been doing it and how do we support that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think it's very much like a both and thing. Like, Mm -hmm. I need to do the work And I can also support others because like, I think that sometimes maybe it would be like easy for me to like write a check to support an organization and not do the work, you know? And so I think that it's a combination of those things. And then as you said, I actually had Dr. Jennifer O'Quirquiu on the show. She's a reproductive psychiatrist, also black mother, works in this space. And she emphasized a lot when we were talking about the invisible load of black mothering and what can come with that how to find your joy, how to find your community, your people who see you, who won't. Your interactions won't always be filled with like microaggressions, but they're like your real people who see you and get you, you know? For sure. So I co-parent with my friend. We co-parent. We have two kids. So I have some mothering in there, right? But I don't have a 24-7 kid at home. Right. Because I I really don't try to speak to the mothering perspective because I'm like, that's not me. I'm not there yet in a full way. Right. But the one thing that I can comment on is Doing this work, like a lot of people really admire my work, right? And I love that, right? And they really appreciate my work and I love that. And there is this level of expectation that is placed on me. And I think a lot of like Black quote unquote leaders in a reproductive health space or whatever it is. And people don't always recognize that we're constantly working in this work, right? We're always working on this problem but we're also being highly impacted by this work yeah. a million times over, yeah. right? So it's like, we don't have the ability to just like, I'm going to put my work down for today, right? Because it's like, I am being impacted by this work. This work is not something I'm just working on. It's something that I am. It's something I'm existing in, right? So like, even in my book, right. I talk about when I first found out that I had a fibroid. And so... That story is something, yes, please share it. Because I was like <laughs> infuriated, yes. So at this time, it was so wild. 2015, I had started, you know, my process is starting as a doula. But in that process, I was going through some physical health things. Like my back was always hurting. I was like dealing with some things that I'm like, hmm, something's going on, but I don't really know. So finally, I had like a week. I was like, I need to go get checked out because I was having um like upper rib pain. And I was like, I don't know what's going on. I was like, all of like 27. I don't know. So I'm like 26. I'm like, I don't think anything's falling apart yet. I mean, right. maybe, but I don't think so. So <laughs> I went to urgent care and I had a white doctor at the time. And so I was like, hey, I'm having this pain. I'm, I'm, I'm describing it. He's like, okay, I think it's your gallbladder. I know, I've never had gallbladder issues. I've never had this kind of thing. I went to a doctor again. I think that time they were like, oh, we think it's probably a kidney stone or whatever. And I'm like, I don't have kidney stones. Like that's never been an issue for me, whatever. So I went to a doctor on Monday. He gave me some medicine. I went to a doctor on Wednesday, another white doctor. He gave me some medication. And like, luckily for me, because I am, you know, even before I was a dual I'm type person where I know something's going on with me and I'm going to figure it out, right? Yeah, you but trust yourself. I trust myself, right? Yeah. But like, even that can be like such a gaslighting situation where totally. you're like a doctor's telling you, no, you're fine, or is this? And you're like, well, I don't think that's it. But also you're the doctor, you're, yeah. right? But luckily I come from, you know, some really bossy Black women who are like, mm-mm, right? So... Love it. So then that Friday, I went to another doctor who was a doctor of color. He was an Indian doctor. And so he was the first one to actually palpate 
my stomach. Do a physical like examination to like touch around? Yeah, like do a physical examination. And he was like, let's get you an MRI. If something's going on, let's get you an MRI. So I went and got the MRI. The next week I get the results back and they're like, you have a really large fibroid. It's hitting your back. You know, it's hitting your literal spine. It's reducing your rectum, which is why you're always constipated. Right. <laughs> it's hitting your bladder. It's hitting all these central things. And this needs to come out pretty much ASAP hmm. because you're not going to be able to survive like this, like literally, right? But like, when I think about that, it took me three doctors in a week. And two of the doctors like pushed me off, didn't palpate. And literally like, I was also even thinner at that point. So like, if I laid on my back and you palpate, I could feel the fibroid. Hmm. It was right there. Mm-hmm. And, like It wasn't even something that was really hidden. Right. So it was like one of those things where I was like, it's something that sparked my love of this work early on because I was already becoming a doula at that time. But it's just like an example of like, there's no distinction. <laughs> right. Yeah. There's no, I just work on this thing because it feels good for me. And this is like my, you know, love of the work and for my community. It's like, no, I'm also of this. Mm-hmm. Like, I've also been impacted directly by this. You know, I also give another story of the heart issue that I have. And the doctor telling me that I was just dehydrated while I'm like passing out and can't work. Mm, (laughs) So it's like, we just have to be mindful that in this work, there's so much for us to do, but it has to be done collectively. And it cannot be done with just looking at Black leaders and saying, okay, you do the work and I'll just give you a check. Right. No, it's like, what are you really willing to do? Because like, I'm holding all this and I need someone else to hold this with me. And it can't just be the people who are impacted directly by racism. It has to be, the collective if we want to move together collectively because my liberation and we were to quote-unquote solve racism or help these things or even with the black perinatal health disparities right like if we were to actually do something about that it only actually causes a ripple effect Mm -hmm. that also impacts everyone for the positive as well mealtime with kids can be stressful but with factors delicious ready-to-eat meals it can be a lot easier Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to eat in just two minutes. No worrying about ingredients and nutrition, no prep, no mess, and no cooking while wrangling toddlers. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Factor can even be tailored to your schedule. Customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Take the stress out of meals with Factor. Head to factormeals.com slash momwell50 and use code MOMWELL50 to get 50% off your first box. Mom rage often leads us to feeling ashamed, but the truth is that our rage doesn't mean we're bad moms. In fact, anger is a sign from our bodies that our needs aren't being met. As moms and therapists, Dr. Asherina Reem's psyched mommy and I understand mom rage. We know that we all lose our cool sometimes, And we also know that with the right tools and strategies in place, those moments happen less often. We've teamed up and combined our years of experience to create All The Rage, raising kids with less anger and more connection, a course designed to be your go-to resource for preventing and handling your anger. We dive into what causes your anger, how it impacts your body, how to reframe your thinking, and how to stay calm in triggering moments. And because we are all human, we also include strategies for repairing after we inevitably lose our cool. In honor of Maternal Mental Health Week, you can save $20 on the course with promo RAGE20 this week only. Don't miss out on your chance to save and make a positive change. Head to momwell.com slash rage and save with code RAGE20. That's momwell.com slash rage, code RAGE20. It also makes me think about the example of like sexism and like misogyny, 
we are liberated as women when also men liberate themselves. It's like, it's an equivalent, right? Like it's, I feel like that's a similar parallel where uh-huh. we each have to do the work to all sort of rise together. And it is, let's say it's more expedited or it goes more smoothly when we can do it together versus one side of it, having to like trudge forward and carry all of that Mm -hmm. weight. Right. For sure. We did an episode recently on medical gaslighting of women and went through some of the backgrounds behind that and women being hystericalized and it being like a DSM diagnosis for up until like 40 years Mm -hmm. ago and things like that. But then we also add some other layers here when it comes to women of color because of, you talk about like the birth of gynecology and I share some educational resources and like during this week, we've been sharing them even more about some of the reasons like why these things happen so that people can be aware and primarily probably people that are white like me can really understand what the heck is going on. Mm -hmm. And the myth that perpetuates about like pain tolerance. This is a major one that comes up a lot. Like, and we hear stories like Serena Williams and she knows her body. She's had a procedure before, like a polyp in her lung or something like that. And she's expressing, I need this procedure to be checked or I need this uh, medication, whatever it was. Like I've had this before. I know what my body's experiencing and was completely dismissed. So we've got this already systemic problem, I feel like, of the gaslighting of women. But then we add on these other myths and biases, as you said, that layer on top of that. Yeah. And I could definitely, like, as a Black woman, and especially as a dark-skinned Black woman, right? And I think there's colorism in all types of, you know, ethnicities and things like that. Yeah. But speaking to, like, being a a dark-skinned Black woman, (laughs) I definitely get mammified more than I'm, like, but you're not a child. Why are you looking at me in this kind of way, right? But mm. when we think about historically, I think historically to things that like we can think about, but slavery specifically, right? There was this idea of like, you had your Black women taking care of people's kids, right? And then literally wet nursing. You have, when we talk about J. Marion Sons, the father of gynecology and his use of Black female slaves to create procedures that we are aware of these days but the use of like the body as this like dehumanized right approach to solving medical things or medical exploration and medical research Mm -hmm. a lot of these things being without anesthesia with (laughs) without any of that and all these things right they're generational they keep moving these ideas of like black people in pain even now like there's always this not always but a lot of times in my experience People, especially when I used to work in corporate America specifically, there was this idea that like I could do a million things, right? It was like this idea of like, oh, Savia, she can do a million things, right? And it was also an inner dialogue of me being a Black woman in the U.S. and saying like, well, I have to do a million things mm. if anyone's going to actually appreciate me or to show my value, right? And that's even been a thing that I've had to work through of like, I don't have to do new things to be valuable, mm-hmm. right? But if we look at this in historical context, right, and the things that we have all kind of grown biased towards and stories that we have absorbed unknowingly, right, there's that pressure specifically for Black women to just show up and to be the heroes of the story, right? Like a lot of times, yeah. even in just my experience, I'm like, when we see struggle, struggle and, and getting through struggle a lot of times, especially even from like white folks, right? There's pressure of like, we're going through struggle. Let me look at Sabia. Because Sabia's going to know what to do. Mm-hmm. Right? And I'm like, mm-hmm. okay. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's interesting because it reminds me of this concept of like being a strong Black woman, right? Mm-hmm. Like on one hand, hell yes, right? But then on the other hand, it can perpetuate this, like you can take more than the average person, you can carry more on your shoulder. It's like, it's almost a little bit dehumanizing. It's like when people say, oh, you know, super mom. I'm like, I don't want to be a super mom. I didn't ask for that title and I don't want to carry any of this shit. Like, you know what I mean? It's that kind of thing where this perception, and I think in some ways uh, meant to be honoring, depending on how it's used and whatever, can also be the thing that reinforces that. Mm-hmm you can tolerate more, you know? For sure. I mean, it's, it's capacity, right? Like, I think 
there is sometimes like when we talk about trauma and we talk about like trauma responses, there's conversation, right? And you probably had it on your podcast about like sometimes white women and their capacity is very low, right? And we get the white tears and we get to this and we get to that and we get whatever. Yeah. Not all white women. And that's like a capacity thing, right? And I think a lot of times because of conditioning, black women have a higher capacity, mm. right? But I think people have to be aware of that higher capacity comes at a risk. Right. Like that higher capacity comes with depression. Yeah. It comes with mental health. Right. Even, you know, obviously with people who are parents, especially. Right. You got all types of chemical changes going on, bodily things coming on, and then you're dealing with the conditions. Right. Yeah. And we were talking about like weathering, the weathering of black bodies. Yeah. Right. Generationally, we have low birth weight. We have preeclampsia. We have these things because of the weathering. Right. Which is really the external forces impacting the ways that our bodies function. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I feel like I have a high capacity. I do. Mm -hmm. Like, I know. And I have to, like, sometimes, like, push myself, like, you have to relax, right? Yeah. Because I do have the ability out of trauma, right, a trauma response to take on a million things. But then it takes me six months to recover from the process because I was working at a high capacity, but it came at a cost of my body, my mental health, my well-being, my relationships. So, like, even as a part of, like, my branding, and I even talk about in the book, like Black grief and like how it looks differently than a lot of people. Like grief for some people is like, you know, I can't get out of bed and I can't do this. But even in grief and depression, there's been like research that says like Black women specifically do even more, right? Mm-hmm. They do even more, right? And not only are they in this grief or this depressive state, but then they're also guilting themselves, right? Because they are depressed, because they right. are feeling things while also trying to maintain a higher capacity, which is not actually healing anything that's going on, right? Yeah. Like for me, even in my branding, like I have in there, like I'm a Black luxury expert. And that means that I'm going to rest. I'm going to take care of myself. But that was like very intentionally, right? Because my liberation practices require me to rest. Yeah. (laughs) Right? My liberation practices require me to say no, right? But I've had to put that on the front, like a billboard as wide as as anyone can see, right? Because I'm like, I'm not carrying that weight and that I'm not letting you dehumanize me in order for me to continue to do this work. If I'm going to do this work, I cannot let it kill me. Right. And a lot of Black women, especially in this space, our health is deteriorating. Mm. It's just important for all of us to be doing this work. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was seeing research even when it comes to sleep that like Black bodies, generally speaking, sleep less, like get less sleep, get less rest. And there's lots of different ways to look at this, like these weathering statistics. And I was, Uh okay, stick with me for a minute. I was watching Below Deck last night. Oh, I love Below Deck. Random reality show. Love Below Deck. So good. I'm here for all the reality shows. Yeah. (laughs) And in the current season I'm watching, there was a Black woman who was American. And then there was a Black man who was from the islands, like from the Caribbean somewhere. And they were having a conversation about what it was like to be Black in America versus his Blackness was never a thing Mm -hmm. because he grew up in an 85%, you know, Black environment. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about the weathering of bodies, it reminds me of um, Rachel Carlisle, I believe her name is. And she openly on her platform was talking about how she wanted to, like, go somewhere, you know, in Africa. I don't know exactly where Mm -hmm. to just rest her body, you know, to just not be activated all the time and be hypervigilant all the time. And mm-hmm. it's an interesting perspective because it's one that my husband comes from. Like he grew up in West Africa and Benin and all over the place, really. But like he's only been here for 10 years and Canada is quite a different climate still. Yeah. Not that there is no racism here because there is, <laughs> but it is certainly different. But he had the majority of his life in this predominantly Black environment before being here. So that's a very different experience and upbringing than somebody who's raised in this trauma and hypervigilant all the time. So I lived in San Diego for three years, and I've been living in Georgia now for like three years, I think. And part of me moving, because I love San Diego. I was like, this is great. I'm in the sun, like all that kind of stuff. My nonprofit is still out there. It's great. But part of me moving was like, I just need to be around more Black people. Yeah. I just got to a point where I was like, I need to be around more Black people and I need to be around more expressions of Blackness. So I moved to Atlanta just because I just wanted to see 
more black. I just wanted to not feel like the other when I walk into a restaurant. I wanted to, yeah. you know, not have people emphasize or give me the look that I know they're looking at my blackness. Like I just wanted to not be seen for that, right? As like the first thing. And I wanted to not be so hyper vigilant mm-hmm. about it, like you were saying. Mm-hmm. So like I definitely understand that. And even like one of the things that popped into my head is my, I'm not gonna get the statistic absolute correct. But one of the things we talk about in my nonprofit is people who are coming from outside of the U.S., Black folks who come outside of the U.S., they have their kids, but that first generation usually has worse outcomes than the people who are coming from other places outside of the U.S., Hmm. right? Because Mm -hmm. once they get into this American system, this Americanist way of living, they have worse outcomes than the folks who come from outside of the U.S., right? Mm -hmm. And like, of course, there's a lot of like, a learning we have to have around that because people think like, oh, you come to the U.S. and it's going to be good and whatever. Yeah. Not for Black people. Right. <laughs> Not for Black people, right? Yeah. So that's just like one of the ways that when we talk about like disparities and we talk about maternal and perinatal health, like what is impacting us, right? Like coming into the U.S. where a lot of people find us, you know, a safe haven, right? Coming from a lot of our clients and my nonprofit come from Haiti, right? Understandably so. They're finding safety in the U.S., but their bodies... Mm. on the long term, Mm -hmm. generationally, are not finding the same level of safety. Yeah. And it's so interesting because, like, on one hand, I was going to say, like, it takes courage to unlearn and it's hard to do this work, you know? And then I actually remember a conversation that we had, you know, in our first interview where I was like, oh, you know, like, this is such, like, hard conversations to have. You're like, the hell? I have to have these conversations every single day of my life, you know? <laughs> every so day. talk about capacity. Like my capacity for this conversation was like in the negative, mm-hmm. but this is something that is a reality and that is talked about and that is lived with. And so while it is maybe hard for us, for me, a privileged person who's never had to face these microaggressions, it is still a sliver of what is lived every day, you know? Yeah. And in my book, we talk about that. Like, I specifically give somatic exercises for people of color, people who are non-people of color, right? And, like, I do that because I think one thing that I've learned in my space is that everyone has their experience. And, like, what may feel hard to you may not feel hard to me, but it doesn't matter because it feels hard to you. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Like, it feels hard to you. So I'm not going to invalidate the spaces that feel hard for you. Right. But what I'm going to do is help you and guide you through exercises and and conversation and ways of being and ways to build your capacity because your capacity may be at negative 100. Yeah. Right. But like if we can get it to negative 80, then we're doing something. If we get we can move to negative 30, then we're doing something. We can get it to plus 10. Great. Right. So I think like part of this process also, too, is like we have to see each other as humans. Right. And so. By the time I like, you know, complain about your low capacity, we could have been learning something. Right. We could have been getting you to the next stage. We could have been moving you to uh, to the next. And that might take longer. Everyone's path is different, mm-hmm. right? I know a lot of people, specifically people who are not people of color, who are like have the largest capacities and they are ready to go, right? right? And they like, they go do the things, right? And I also know people who are like at the very foundational piece of this conversation right. and they're having to do that personal work to build their capacity. And that, to me, is fine because that's a part of the journey. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You have to start somewhere. You have to. Yeah, if you're on yeah. the journey, I'm clapping for you. Yeah. Right? Like, if that means that you're going to move at a slower pace than I would like you to, I'm still clapping for you. Yeah. Right? Because you're on the journey. Right? And we have to, like, give people this time and the space to be on it versus knocking it down because they're not what we want them to be at this current time. Yeah. Right? So it's a process. We start the process of unlearning or maybe examining our own bias or the environments that we've been raised in that maybe had racist undertones or likely had racist undertones. And it is super uncomfy to confront, but I love the exercises that you put in there because it is a, like, it's a practice in tolerance building just because it's harder, just because it's uncomfortable doesn't mean we get to like shut down and avoid it. Like it's still necessary work. And so I feel like your book acknowledges that and also pauses and is like, okay, you're probably getting like activated at this point. Let's breathe. Let's do an exercise here. Let's come back around. Like, it's okay. We're okay. We're safe here. You know, (laughs) it's not a race. Yeah. It's not a race. Yeah. Because then when we have that race thing, we get into like what I call in the book, like the woke wars, 
Yeah. And like, I see this amongst everyone, but I also see this amongst white people where I'm like, y'all are so busy saying who's more woke and who does more things that you're actually not doing the work anymore because you're just like, I know this and I know this and I'm a community with this one and I know that. And it's like, can you just teach your other white people like help them positively so they can do the work so I don't have to do that work. Right. And can we just move forward without it being now a competition about who's the most like elite woke person? Right. Let's not do that. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Oh my gosh. I feel like I could talk to you all day long and we're running out of time and I have so many things that I want to get to. So one maybe last thing I would like us to unpack the definition and then maybe we'll leave with a few sort of next steps on where people can begin. But you use the word lactivist in the book. Mm-hmm. And I know that black breastfeeding, we may be opening a whole can of worms here because there's a history and there's a whole bunch and we only have a few minutes, yeah. but I think it's so important. I think there's even like a black breastfeeding week and some awareness that goes on. And we yes. talk about it on the platform quite a bit as well, but I hadn't heard the word lactivist before. And I really mm-hmm. loved that, but it's such an important piece as well. Yes. Lactivists are amazing. <laughs> And the way that I would put this, right, is like, so I'll kind of go back a little bit. But when I became a doula, right, I went right into working with incarcerated folks, formerly incarcerated folks, people who are currently in recovery or actively using, right, substances. And so I went into this space starting off hard, right? And I went right into like reproductive justice. And like that was like the foundation for the work that I did. Activism was always a foundation. Advocacy was always a foundation for me. And I specifically did that on purpose. Like I looked for a space where I could do that. And so for me, when I started getting into like the more quote unquote professional doula world, and I realized that like not everybody sees this work that way, right? There were doulas who were like, I'm not an activist. I'm not an advocate. I don't do that kind of work. Like I'm here to like, you know, be, I don't want to (laughs) say Not that you can't be in alignment with the medical industrial complex to some degree or physicians, but I'm not here to like raise hell if things aren't right. Right. Mm. And so that was like so surprising to me because I was like, uh, if we're talking about black folks, indigenous folks, you know, brown folks specifically, like they need advocates. They Mm -hmm. need people who are going to ask the question. They need people that's going to be inquisitive. They need people that are going to raise from hell sometimes. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's the same thing for lactation. Right. Where there are people who are, you know, going with the flow, abiding by whatever is going on. And then there are others who are bringing the advocacy and the activism to the work, which is so important. Mm-hmm. Right. And they're bringing the disparities together. They're bringing the access issues together. They're creating places of access. They're building a community. Right. They're doing those things. And so that's what a lactivist does. Yeah. Right. So it's like you can be a lactation and not be a lactivist. Right. But I prefer you do. Yeah. So it's important because it's like, there's so many things when we talk about, you know, lactation as a whole and we talk about the disparities. It's not like Black people are not just, you know, they're not lactating or breastfeeding or chest feeding because they don't want to. It's also like, is it really a choice when they don't have the resource, when they don't have supportive laws in place for them in in their places of employment, right? right? Like, do they have, you know, the space and the room to actually do the things that they need to? Like, I'm forever grateful the activists who are doing the work because, you know, as a doula, I think a lot of the work gets like the birth space. A lot of people see us in that space, even though we're full spectrum mm. or some of us are full spectrum. But I think like we have to always emphasize like these things that happen outside, like after the birth. Yeah. Right. Like I said, are there supportive practices for someone who wants to lactate? Do they have what they need? Do they have a lactation consultant or educator who comes to their space and speaks to them in a culturally appropriate way? You know, are they dealing with the commercialization? of lactation so they have to get the most expensive plant the most expensive this the most expensive that like mm-hmm. it's like there's so mm-hmm. much work that goes mm-hmm. into folks who are doing lactation in a more community-centered advocating and activist way yeah one of the things i find comes up is like why does everything have to go back to slavery it's kind of like when i'm in therapy with people and they're like, why does everything have to be about our childhood? It's like, because it freaking is about your childhood. First of all, that's where you learn all of the patterns that are now ingrained in you. You know, mm-hmm. it is. And so it's kind of like looking back to understand the context helps inform our current, mm-hmm. you know, place and how we can move forward. The complicated relationship between nursing, breastfeeding and black women And the history there about, you know, being brought in to breastfeed within the home, the white mother's babies. Even like 
you know, beyond that, it's also like formula when it was created. I couldn't believe when you were sharing that in the book. Like, yeah, how, like, yeah, like, yeah, how it was promoted to black people is like, this is the best thing for you to do. Right. And like, and in different places, like in the US and other places, like formula is seen as like a way to show that you are more elite. Right. And that was like also some brainwashing that's happened. Right. right? So like, it's like, there's a complex history. Yeah. We don't know where we're going if we don't know where we've been. Yeah. Right. And how do we not repeat mistakes that we've made? It's by knowing where we've been. Yeah. So we have to have that information. If we want to move forward in a way that is going to be beneficial for everybody, not just black people, not just brown people, but everybody. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I think that we can do good in the present. Okay, like, this is like my therapy analogies, okay? It's like we can be solution focused and we can gain the skills we need to find safety and to control our body and to regulate. And these would be solution focused and they would be in the moment, you know, things to help regulate ourselves but then also to unlearn and to really change things for ourselves, our patterns of behavior and the way that we interact with the world, we have to look at our past and our wounds and our origins and things that we've been raised in in order to like break cycles and do things differently. And I see this as something that is very similar. And so as much as it is uncomfy and our tolerance might be lacking, I think that it's incredibly important work. And as you said, when we liberate one, we liberate the other. And it's work that we that we share in together. Yeah. And it's just, you know, questioning yourself. I think at the end of the day, like, because I feel like humans are selfish in our thinking. We just are, right? Yeah. So if you could just ask yourself, like, do I want to be free? The answer is going to be yes. Mm. So this work is for you to do. Right. Right. Even if you take it away from the people out there here, like, I don't know them. I don't, whatever. It's really about you. Do you want to be free? Yeah. Do you want to have bodily autonomy? Do you want to have choice? Do you want to have care? Do you want to have justice? If the answer is yes, which I'm pretty sure it's going to be yes, mm-hmm. then this is the work that we all need to be doing. Yeah. And your book helps walk people through that. So tell us about where they can find your book, where they can learn more from you. Yes. So you can find my book everywhere, which is wild. What? <laughs> I know. But... I'm going to like get it in the wild photo and like send it to you and tag yeah. you. It's so fun. Yeah. yeah. So if you look at Birth and Liberation, you can find it at whatever spaces feels more comfortable for you to purchase from. Kind of people don't like to put their dogs in certain spaces. So wherever you need to buy it, you buy it. I just want you to get it and love it and receive it and read it. And then, of course, to find more on me specifically, just sabiawade.com. You can also go to my Instagram, sabiawade. And there's all my things somewhere in all the busyness that I'm doing. Yeah. And we'll for sure link all of those things in the show notes. You can easily click through as well and peruse and find all the things that you need. So thank you so much for joining us again today. Thank you for inviting me back. It was fun. Now, I know that this episode may have felt uncomfortable or intense for some. Being able to rethink and challenge worldviews that we've grown up with is difficult and can be uncomfortable, and it requires a level of tolerance and intention. I find that when I have conversations like this, I want to do something. I want to jump in and see that I can make a tangible difference somewhere. And this is really a journey. This is a long time strategy that plays out over time. And even a shift in our intention and awareness and philosophy, our ability to challenge our own worldviews is an amazing place to start and focus. If you're looking for more of a guide on this journey, then I do encourage you to go and get Savia's book as she really walks through the history and the context and also helping build that tolerance while going through her book. If you're listening and you feel like you have trauma at the hands of the medical system or you feel as though you've been gaslit in medical conversations and situations and you're looking for some support, I encourage you to book in a free 15-minute consultation with one of our therapists who can help you to process this trauma and develop a plan for engaging with the medical system moving forward. To book in a free 15-minute consultation with one of our mom therapists, head to momwell.com. That's momwell.com. I'll see you right back here, same time, same place next week, where I'm being joined by one of our mom wall therapists, Dr. Nicole Mowbray. 
to discuss the unique pressures of modern motherhood. You don't want to miss it. I'll see you right back here next week. I can't even begin to tell you how happy and honored I am that you choose to spend your time here with me each week. If you're looking for resources or links from today's show, or you need a refresh on anything we've talked about, visit our show notes. You can find the link in the episode description, or you can head directly to momwell.com slash learning center to join the momwell email list and be the first one to know about new episode drops, insider info, or freebies head to momwell.com slash newsletter. Join me next week. Until then, remember that you have to be well to mom well. Settling is not an option for me. Everything I desire is already mine. What if you can have it all? Because every day is for the girls. Hello, hello. Welcome to For the Girls podcast, hosted by Victoria Alario, For the Girls Who Want More. Listening to For the Girls will have you ready to raise the bar, stop settling for the bare minimum, and start believing you can have it all and step into the 2.0 version of you. You can catch a new episode of For the Girls every Monday across all podcast platforms. Until next time, girls.